There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hello, good morning, and welcome to The Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray sitting in for Michael until 11 a.m. this morning. Michael will be back with you tomorrow. If you want to get in touch, by the way, give us a call on 041-9832-000, or you can text or WhatsApp us on 086-1800-658. Now, if you're approaching retirement, indeed, if you're currently in retirement, here's a question that some people may have difficulty answering, and it is, how do you pay the rent when you retire. If you're relying on a pension that isn't adequate enough uh, to meet your financial outgoings, how are you going to pay the bills in order to keep a roof over your head? This is a problem that's starting to gain a little bit more traction because uh, some people, uh, either through family breakup or divorce or whatever, have found themselves renting in their later years. But as I say, when they end their working life, they don't have enough income. Uh, alone and Threshold both say they're working with a growing number of older people facing notices to quit, increasing rent, poor housing conditions and homelessness. I'm joined on the line right now by Gronia Lochran, who is the Senior Policy Advocacy Officer with Alone. Uh, first of all, Gronia, um, how serious of a situation is this? Good morning, Ken. Um, For us, this is an extremely serious situation and I suppose the challenge is that it's only going to grow more serious as the years go on. So last year, of the nearly 35,000 older people supported by a loan, over 5,800 were primarily experiencing housing difficulties and the applications for our housing increased sixfold uh, compared to the year previous. So what we're seeing is an increasing number of older people experiencing housing difficulties and particularly from the private rental sector. Um, As we know, home ownership is dropping. We know older renters are increasing as well and homelessness is increasing among older people. I suppose really the challenge is that a lot of the figures are pointing in the wrong direction and we're not seeing significant commitment from government to reverse that. Well, now, the type of people who find themselves in this type of situation, are they, as I said in my intro, the type of individuals who perhaps uh, have gone through a marriage breakup and have left the family home and have been renting in their later years? Or is there a typical type of person who is renting in their 60s? I mean, that does happen frequently, but I suppose the one thing that connects an awful lot of the people who come to a loan is that most of them never expected they'd be coming to us for help in their 60s, 70s and beyond. Uh, We do get a lot of people who, for one reason or another, never got a chance to buy. Maybe they emigrated and returned home again. Maybe, like you say, there was a marriage breakup or a relationship breakup and they left the family home. But there's a lot of reasons that this can happen. Sometimes it happens where people go into mortgage arrears, they look to move. Sometimes it's living with family members um, and moving out. There's so many reasons that this can happen. 
um, and a lot of people um, really don't see it coming. Well, no, a journalist friend of mine was telling me a story of uh, a number of people who perhaps were in their mid to late 30s when the financial crash happened and uh, they mm-hmm. couldn't afford to get a mortgage 10, 15 years ago and they continued to rent. But when they did have the money to get a mortgage, the banks wouldn't give them a mortgage. Is that a cohort of people that are likely to find themselves um, in this type of situation in the next five to 10 years? Absolutely. So um, we know that there's about 17,000 people um, who are 65 and older who are renting at the minute, which is a big increase. But in that 45 to 64 age group, there's 82,000 people renting. So our question is, where will they be in 20 years time? Will they all be in the private rental sector? Um, We know that there's such long waiting lists for social housing. Um, it's very difficult to see what the plan is for that group. And the private rental sector really just doesn't offer the support, the security of tenure um, that older people require from their housing. Um, we know, for example, that um, older people do get, we've heard that older people do get discriminated against in the private rental sector. We know that they can't access in many cases as well the housing adaptation grants they might need to make their home more adapted and suitable for them. So there's a lot of reasons why um, it's not suitable and also as we say um, a lot of indicators that show that the problem is only going to get worse. Now you're calling on the government to implement the recommendations in a report known as the double deficit report. Will you talk us through what the recommendations are in that report? course. So Alone and Threshold worked together last year to develop and publish a report called Double Deficit, which looked at the experiences of older people in the private rental sector. So there were 12 recommendations in that report. Um, it was published in May. And some of those included um, increasing ring fencing of social housing for, social, for older people, um, developing and investing in things like housing with support as another model of housing, ensuring adequacy of the state pension and investing in housing adaptation grants and incentives for landlords to access them in the private rental sector. Um, there's really a range of, of recommendations, but what we would love to see is any of them um, being committed to and progressed um, at government level, at department of housing level. Um, because I suppose the challenge is time is against us and um, we're not seeing sufficient commitment in housing for all to housing for older people. In terms of the number of people who are entering this phase of their life, you know, they're approaching retirement, but they may not have enough money uh, to meet their rental bills. And the number of social houses that are required to, to meet this problem, what sort of numbers are we talking about in terms of houses that need to be built, that are social and affordable and the various schemes that go with it? How many houses do we need to address this problem? Well, we actually published uh, another report in uh, 2019 called Housing Choices uh, for Older People, Time for Action. And that outlined um, all the units that would be required across a range of different types of housing, including social housing, um, housing with support, uh, private housing, um, housing 
one and two bed housing, the whole range um, of housing units required for older people. Um, the reality is that um, it significantly outstrips all of the targets in housing for all. And this is just talking about housing for older people here and um, not housing for the general population. Um, so given that the commitments in housing for all are, are indeed going to meet the needs for our older people, um, we really struggle to see how government is going to uh, meet those needs in the years to come. Um, if the government can't meet these targets, I mean, how many people over the age of 65 are we looking at in the coming years who could find themselves homeless? It's difficult to say at this point. Um, we know that there's about 190 people who are 65 plus who are homeless at the moment. Um, we also know that those numbers have been kind of creeping upwards. Um, so if the numbers of older people on the social housing waiting list um, but given that there are, there's a there's multiples of people the age 45 to 64 who are renting, um, that that's about three to four times as many um, older people we might expect to be renting in the next 15 to 20 years. Um, that's extremely worrying. And what we're concerned about is that the homelessness numbers among older people will have to hit 700, 800, 900 before some kind of intervention is made. Um, but we can prevent it if we make the commitments now and we make the changes. Um, that's really the urgency behind this because nobody, it's very, it's of course extremely difficult being homeless and experiencing homelessness at any age, but maybe particularly so when you're in your 70s, 80s maybe, and experiencing it for the first time, which is something we unfortunately see in alone quite regularly. Well, now, Gronia, um, I, I presume alone and Threshold have presented the case to the government. What sort of response have you been getting? Well, we're going down to Leinster House today um, to present our case further to government. Um, we'll be down presenting at the AV room in Leinster House later on, and we're hopeful of getting a strong response. Um, we know as well that the general, uh, the local uh, and European elections are upcoming, a general election potentially not long after that. And we're hopeful that all parties uh, will consider making housing for older people a priority in that. Um, this, is some, this is a challenge that is only going to increase um, in the next couple of years. Uh, we've gotten some support from various TDs and senators, and we've been grateful for that support. But what we really need is to see widespread support, including this in policy, including this in manifestos, and working to make it happen. Finally, Gronia, if somebody listening to this programme is uh, 65 or 66 and is about to enter retirement and they find themselves in the situation that you've been talking about, is there anywhere they can go for help that will prevent a scenario where they could end up being evicted or end up homelessness? Is there anywhere they can go and talk to somebody? Well, I suppose our, our primary advice would be to call alone, first of all. Um, our national support and referral line is 0818 um, and we're open 8am to 8pm, seven days a week. Um, there you can be linked in with uh, one of our support coordinators who will support you to access any supports you might need. Um, that might be linking you in with social housing, linking you in with threshold, with an approved housing body, it might be supporting you with your landlord, with the RTB, a range of different actions might be required. 
um, but uh, by calling alone or indeed by calling Threshold, um, you'll be linked in with the supports uh, that can prevent homelessness. Okay, we'll leave it there. That's uh, Gronia Lochran there, Senior Policy Advocacy Officer with Alone. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, under plans brought to Cabinet yesterday by Minister for Finance Michael McGrath, shops and pharmacies will have to accept cash as part of plans to keep physical money in the economy, given that some people prefer to use it. Now, the access to cash bill also gives the central bank powers to compel banks to provide ATMs in areas where people have difficulty withdrawing uh, cash. Now, uh, I'm joined on the line by uh, Seamus Boland. He's the CEO of the Irish Rural Link organisation. Mr Boland, you're saying that the digital transformation is happening too fast and it's inconvenient for many. Uh, From the people you deal with, what, what are they saying? Can it certainly is happening too fast and going too far all too quickly. The reality is for various reasons, for lack of education, not so much training, lack of training, I should say, lack of broadband facilities, lack of uh, familiarity with the various devices. Uh, the management of money is a, is a major issue and it's just happening too fast and people cannot catch up. It affects the, mainly the older group, but also not totally. There's younger groups f- affected as well. And it also affects many people living in, in rural areas whose, as I said, facilities for de- digitalization are not great. All of this is, seems to be happening at a so fast that people are afraid of things like fraud, uh, of familiarity with the systems, lack of being able to have a personal contact if something goes wrong. All of that reassurance is not there yet. And simply we are saying it is happening for that reason too fast and going too far. Well, now, the trend suggests that as we move on, uh, that cash will become uh, less and less a reality in our daily lives, that everything is going on to things like debit cards, Revolut cards, uh, credit cards and the like, and that we're going to be making more transactions uh, using this technology. Um, Would you say that uh, the government is fighting a losing battle here? I think the government and we would agree with them and we also share their view. In fact, we campaigned for it last year. Uh, the view is that, uh, look, this is happening. You're correct. We are moving towards digitalization. We are moving towards processes to manage our money in a different way. All of that is true, but we're not there yet and that's the problem uh, the problem is that you know if, if you're managing the most vital part of your existence your money you need to be sure and and fully au fait with the the technical the technique the technology you need to be absolutely certain that you can deal with fraud scams there was a recent uh, article published in one of the national papers i think Connor pope showed what happened to a couple who lost seven thousand euro in a revolute scam now you know Revol- i'm not saying revolute are at fault but it was the sheer helplessness of the couple in that situation. And what older people are saying is, uh, we need a digitalization system. And not just older people, by the way, because many older people, uh, and nearly in that capacity myself, are well able to use their credit cards. So I'm not demonizing them as being incapable. They, many of them do. But they need to be sure that they have a way back to sort out problems. Uh, and that is not quite guaranteed yet. So I'm simply saying the choice for 
digitalization should also be for physical cash being available in the vital services like pharmacies and uh, shops. And I would go further in cafes and I would even go further for football matches. But I think we have to take it a lot slower than we're doing. What would you say to people who say that uh, there are all sorts of various handling charges for moving cash around and that these charges can in some cases make their businesses unviable uh, and that therefore they are exposed to a situation where their businesses could actually close down and that the the new digital world that we live in uh, helps them to save costs? And, I, and I, I hear that argument all the time. And at the moment, we know restaurants and, and other small businesses are really suffering. Uh, but that, but it's not just, you know, you can't just blame that on the finance handling charges. I mean, a lot of people are still using card uh, and the Revolut and all of that. And that trend is increasing. So in a way, their, their handling charges are reducing all the time. Uh, I think we, we, we've gone massively up to 45% of people now using uh, the te- digitalization. So I would argue that the handling charges are reducing all the time as this trend continues. But there are other factors affecting restaurants at the moment. The, uh, the imposition of the minimum pay is certainly causing a lot of problems at the moment. And there are other uh, governmental uh, issues Bash, for example. So there are. It's not just handling charges that are causing the the margins in terms of small businesses to tighten. We had a situation some years back where a number of the leading banks uh, removed their ATMs from uh, various high streets around the country because they said they were no longer viable, uh, on the basis that the banks. Uh, spew out the line that uh, ATMs um, are costing the banks money. Do you have any concerns or fears that the banks may actually pass on costs for other financial transactions in order to keep cash in circulation? Okay, (laughs) the banks, in my opinion, uh, need an need to answer a lot of questions. Um, in terms of, I would argue the banks first of all removing ATMs. Let's deal with that. There was a major, uh, as you know, problem over the last five, ten years over banks closing. Many banks promised that they would leave their ATMs as a holding operation in order to allow people uh, to, to have still some connection. Gradually, they've now been withdrawing this service and again, happening too fast, which is why the government legislation is required. The banks also are still refusing, unlike in other countries, to provide real support to their customers, especially those who need support in learning how to be familiar with uh, um, digitalization, with managing the money, etc. And I just think that the banks have got away with a lot uh, at the moment. So I, I think they, they, I would love to see they answer some of these questions. Why are they doing the minimum in terms of helping customers, especially uh, disadvantaged customers? And, and why are they removing ATMs at a faster rate than they promised? Finally, Seamus, do you have any concerns that this legislation may have a, you know, a definitive shelf life that 10 years down the line, when we're using less cash than we currently do, that this legislation will effectively have passed its sell-by date? 
you know, can we, we are moving that direction. Like we, we can use another analogy, which I've used as well. Uh, how many people use the phone box nowadays in the village? You know, the phone box out in the street, uh, pretty much if it's there now, it's there for cultural and, and, and historic reasons uh, as a kind of a nice touristic attraction. Nobody wants to use them. Nobody needs to use them. They're gone. I, it is certainly clear to me that cash will go down to a very minimal level. But as I said to you, Ken, and as I'm saying, as Irish or Link have been saying, it has to happen in a properly planned way so that customers and particularly people of various disadvantages are secure with the technology they're using. Uh, so yes, 10 years time is fine. It could be very good and it'll help a lot of people but hopefully the technology will have uh, increased and also the customer assistance. The problem, Ken, is, and it always is, when it goes wrong, when your account is suddenly emptied, when a scam comes in, how quick can you respond and how quick can you get an answer on the other side? And honestly, uh, that we have not got there yet. So until we get there, I'm afraid we must take it slowly. All right, we'll leave it there. That's uh, Seamus Boland, the Chief Executive of Irish Rural Link. More to come, we'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the British government has set yet another deadline for politicians in the north to restore power sharing after a previous cut-off date this month passed without an end to the deadlock. The next uh, cut-off point is February the 8th, and you begin to think that there's a deadline for everybody in the audience, and they're going to keep at it and at it and at it until hopefully uh, the DUP sees sense and goes back into the Stormont Assembly. One man who has, uh, I suppose, uh, a flavour of what's happening on the ground in the north is Peter McVerry. He works for our sister station, U105. First of all, Peter, I mean... There was an expectation last Friday that the DUP were meeting and that this was going to be the meeting to decide we're definitely going in or we're definitely staying out. And it all was, uh, if you like, a puff of uh, hot air and came to nothing. Where are we at? Yeah, the, the, the feeling is that it was being talked up, Ken, on, on Friday morning. But then afterwards, it was talked down. Uh, especially by DUP leader Sir Geoffrey Donaldson. He came out and said on Monday that it was never a yay or a nay meeting and he wasn't taking any deal to a vote yet at this stage with his 12 party officers. So where, where we're at now is that the, the legislation uh, was tabled last night in the House of Commons, will be debated today in the House of Commons and is expected to move to the House of Lords. There's time in today for a three-hour debate at Westminster on some elements of it. But it's very limited legislation, Ken. All it really does is extends this deadline. But the SDLP are seeking to table a couple of amendments, one to try and remove this one-party veto for, for Stormont, and a second to try and change the rules to make it easier to elect a, a speaker. But the reality is it's Chris and Harris holding out hope that Geoffrey Donaldson can get the DEB officers to, to vote in favour of a deal before February the 8th. Uh, and again, you know, is that possible or not? The UP are paying the cards very close to their chest. Every other day we hear a positive sending and every other day we hear a negative sending. So, you know, I wouldn't like to bet your money on it, Ken, never mind my own. What sort of anger was there towards the DUP last week when there was an all-out strike of public servants uh, right across the north and a lot of people were pointing the finger directly at the DUP? I mean, were the DUP concerned or was it the proverbial water off the duck's back? They, they, they did say that they were concerned that, that 
the, the blame up here and the anger from the public sector and from unions is being now directed mainly in two ways. One, at the DUP, uh, and then second, at the Secretary of State, Chris Eden-Harris, because all of the parties have now been made aware that the Treasury in London have identified and have put on the table $600 million, which would look after the pay rise for the public sector workers who were striking last Thursday. It wouldn't solve the problem going forward, and that's Chris Eden-Harris's problem to say, listen, it's just a temporary solution to look after people for a year. Stormont needs to come back and find longer-term solutions. But the unions are saying, well, if that money's there, give it to us now. Why are we being held up by the, the DUP? And Chris Eden-Harris, Secretary of State, is saying, listen, the reality on that is that it's a devolved matter. It's up to Stormont, and I can't be doing Stormont's job for it and Stormont's business for it. But definitely anger. The unions got together yesterday, Ken, and, the, for example, the transport workers, so the buses and trains here in Northern Ireland, will be off again next week on the 1st of February, and that's the first of four dates that they're planning as well as they continue and indeed escalate their action should there not be a resolution. Well, now, um, we seem to be getting mixed messages. I interviewed uh, Dr Brian Feeney some time back. He's a columnist with the Irish News, and he was saying, look, this has nothing to do with the Northern Ireland Protocol or the Windsor Framework. This has got to do with the fact, as he puts it, that the hardliners in the DUP just cannot accept that Sinn Féin are now, if you like, the top dogs. They've got the most seats and the yeah. uh, the symbolism of Michelle O'Neill becoming the First Minister is something that the DUP hardliners just can't accept. Sam McBride in the Belfast Telegraph at the weekend was dismissing that line completely. He was making the point that uh, the terms of of the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Windsor Framework, as they would see it, uh, weakens the link between Northern Ireland and GB. What exactly is the issue here? The answer is somewhere between the two, Ken. The reality is that it does, in the mind of, of unionists, um, weaken the link um, in the union and, and, and call into call into question the, the future of the union. Ironically, you know, the, the fear uh, from unionists is that it would push closer towards at least um, a, a, a vote on, on a border poll at some point in the future. Brian Feeney's comments are, are, are comments that, that were echoed last week in the Chamber of the Assembly whenever Sinn Féin posted a recall motion and brought the Assembly back to try and elect that aforementioned Speaker. Michelle O'Neill said exactly that. and said the longer it went on, the more it felt and the more evident Sinn Féin believed there was at the DEP just don't want to serve under Sinn Féin. And it's clear the DEP would be uncomfortable serving under Sinn Féin. Amelette Pengeli is the, is the identified candidate, we understand, from the DUP, who would be joint First Minister should it get that far. But just uh, no, no sign of it as yet. So, and, and the longer this goes on, the less likely it is there'll be an election. Um, so, you know, neither of the two of them will have to decide with the decision can. It's more and more likely that we'll end up with some form of Plan B and um, direct rule, but with more of a say for Dublin than we had pre-Stormont. So therefore, if the DUP hardliners want to avoid greater input from Dublin, logic says they should go in with Sinn Féin and keep Dublin out. Wouldn't that be the case? That would be the case, yeah. So it's, 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 it's a choice for them um, between um, what they can see and the issues and the problems that undoubtedly exist with the protocol or the framework um, and um, taking a chance on what the future might look like when they've got even less say, and that there's more say for for elements that that, um, the DUP wouldn't like to have a say in the running of Northern Ireland. 
Well, now, um, the fact that uh, the DUP uh, has let this drift for almost two years, are you getting any sense or any feeling that uh, London has completely lost patience with the DUP and that there is frustration at the London end and the time has come uh, to give the TUP some sort of a kicking? Absolutely on the angle of the of the frustration. I'm not sure whether they'll go as far as the as the kicking. But if you, if you think back, Ken, when we've had extensions like this before, they haven't been for two weeks. They've been for months and they've kicked the can longer down the road. The, the British government were very clear in the form of the Secretary of State before Christmas to say, listen, the talking is done. We've done all of the negotiating and we're going to do. The deal is on the table. The DUP disagreed with that, said they haven't been told talks were over. We understand that there have been channels that have been open over Christmas and into the new year, but the government are saying that's been for clarification, that there's no more talking to be done. The deal is on the table, and it's up to the DUP to decide whether to take it or reject it. So I think we are approaching a point when we would expect beyond February the if more action to be taken. If we look at the words of the Secretary of State last week, what he talked about was that it was limited input or limited action um, to allow Northern Ireland to be governed in the future and it looks like if we don't have something on or around February 8th that we will find out what exactly that means um, in the in the medium sure, term. Just, I, I just want to get one, one final question in Peter uh, people like Ben Lowry who's a prominent journalist in the north uh, is, is projecting uh, a picture that uh, if the DUP go back in he thinks there's going to be some sort of a split that the hardliners will either go off and form a new party or they'll go to the TUV is that the difficult dilemma that Geoffrey Donaldson is in? It is. You could, I've listened to Ben and Ben, that's the Belfast newsletter up here in Belfast. And the, 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 the situation on the officer board, Ken, is that they've got 12 votes, including Sir Geoffrey. And you know, if he gets a 6 6 split, he can't do anything. The indication this morning, the Belfast Telegraph are reporting they think it's now looking like a 7 5 split in favour of accepting the deal and in favour of Geoffrey. I'm sure he'd like to move that to an 8, an eight 4 because the 7 5 is a very is a is a very close call on a, on any vote, but definitely there are at least three or four very strong opponents who sit on that officer board and who've been who've been very vocal, including uh, the party chairman Lord Morrow, East standard MP Sammy Wilson. I'm going to have uh, to rush you there, Peter. Yeah, and they've been very clear on on all of that. So yeah, definitely that it will have an impact on the DUP. It's whether or not Sir Jeffrey's got the political skills to manage it not turning into a split. All right. All right, we're going to leave it there. It's uh, no doubt a story we'll return to in uh, the weeks and months ahead. That's Peter McVerry there from U105 FM in Belfast. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, just deal with some of your calls. Theresa was on to us to say alone are right. The government need to take action now to prevent thousands of older people facing these issues in the years to come. They cannot put it in on the long finger like they do with so many of other issues. It's too important. Government has failed to meet so many of the housing targets in recent years. It's no wonder people have no faith in them to tackle the problem adequately. And Anne was in touch to say Ireland does not have the best track record when it comes to looking after our older people and this is another area when we could fail miserably. Our public representatives need to get their head in the game and take the necessary measures to safeguard against this problem becoming even more widespread. Now if you live in Navan 
or you drive into Navan from Kells, Athboy, Trim, Kilmesson, Ashburn, Dunshotland, Dulik, Slane, Nobber, uh, well, be warned, there are changes to the traffic layout in the town starting this Sunday, and uh, it's likely to be confusing for many, uh, but the talk from the council and the various councillors is that ultimately, in the long run, this will speed up the traffic flow in Navan. I'm joined on the line right now by Tommy Riley, who is the Coherlock of Meath County Council. Uh, first of all, Tommy, before we talk about the actual changes, why are these changes necessary? Well, I would say, uh, good morning again, I would say again, um, more to, to, to get a better traffic moving in the town. Like, I came out of the town yesterday evening at about half past four, something after four, and the traffic were back to the gardens. And we need we need to try and get a better traffic flow in the town. And I think this will, I think, look, I may be proved wrong, I think this will improve the traffic flow in the town uh, immensely. Now, it's, it's not going to be easy to implement it because um, people, this is the change of a lifetime. People are driving the, the, the street, those streets and having a lifetime the way they are and it's going to have to change. But we will have people at all the junctions uh, and I hope that they'll be courteous and, and mannerly to the mortars that will be angry and given out probably um, and to help them yeah, understand what's going on and where to direct them to in case they do go wrong or anything like that. So it'll, it'll take, it'll, you know, it, 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 it's trial and error but I think it'll work and please God I will. I know some of the traders, particularly in London Street and Bridge Street and won't be happy about that but um, this is this is this is the life we're trying to do up the town, and the part of this done already is absolutely fantastic. And please God, when it's finished, I know it has been a big, big blow to the traders, and I know I'm a trader myself, so I know all about that. But to improve the town, we can't stay static. Uh, we had four thousand people a number of years ago with our population. Now we're close to forty, so we have to move with the times and try and make the town more attractive to people. Number one, and safer. Number two, and. Uh, I think this traffic flow will um, definitely improve that. Okay, can you talk us through the changes? Because uh, I was reading Anne Casey's report in the Meath Chronicle and I was trying to work out in my head uh, what way the traffic is going to go from uh, the current routes to the proposed routes from Sunday next. And I was a little bit confused, no disrespect to Anne's journalism, but... I'm trying to get my head around which way uh, you can go left or right or you can go forward or backwards, whatever. Talk us through the changes as you see them. Well, when you come in the Dublin Road at the Monument, as we call it, that's the way the buses are going to come in there. And they're going to go straight up um, Bridge Street, Academy Street, Bridge Street, Ludlow Street, up onto Market Square, go left at the top and go right then down Kennedy Road. And general traffic that comes in that way will come the same route, but they will not turn left on Market Square. They will go straight across and down Watergate Street. Go on. Uh, that, that, that's that part of it, and that's the most intriguing part of it that's coming into play uh, on Thunder, please God. So if I come uh, in from the Dublin side or the Dunshockland side and I go up yes. Ludlow Street and yes. I get up to the Bull and I swing left... No, I'm, you can't swing left. You can't swing left. The buses are the only thing that will swing left. You have oh, to sure. go right through and down Watergate Street. Right, OK. But the buses can swing left and then right into Kennedy Row, as you say. Yes. But yes. Uh, that's currently one way. So does that become partially two-way? Yes, partially two-way. Yeah. That, 
got bit of it in, in there in the Kennedy Road, yes. Right. Okay. Um, is that basically the main the main change to the town? That would be the main change. As far as I, I can see, it's the main change. But people will, like, it happened myself after the pandemic. I was seven seven weeks and two days without uh, driving and I went into town and uh, railway streets and I saw all the cars on the left-hand side with the right-hand indicators on and I said, my God, what the dickens are they at? And I drove up past them all on the right-hand side, had forgotten that it had been made two-way. And I turned down into Trimgate Street and I went into the chapel yard and a guy followed me and gave me serious threats about what he could do and what he couldn't do with me. And I apologised and I apologised and I apologised, but then I got fed up apologising. Uh, I was going to light a candle, believe it or believe it not, but uh, he'd have got more than a candle in the finish, the way things end up. Right, but if buses are coming up Ludlow Street, swinging left at the Bull and right into Kennedy Row, uh, yes. Kennedy Road, um, where do those buses park? Well, there's a lot of people there. There's a, there's a bus park at um, on the on the the Kells Road. There's a new park there, so they can drive down and park there. And hopefully, there won't be they won't be delaying too long because. There'll be buses coming the other way as well, you know. So uh, the parking, the parking will be on the Kells Road for buses. The new park that's been built there at the back of St. Anne's. Right. Um, and the town, the town bus service will also use that hopefully and bring people into town if they want to park there. Now the long term plan is out at. Malone's Garage and uh, Navin Hire. There's land there that the council have acquired for a major car park and major bus station. Uh, when that'll take place, I don't know, but it'll, it'll have to take place sooner rather than later. OK, I'm curious as to what sort of study you undertook to arrive at this new plan. I mean, wh- what is wrong with the traffic flow as it is? Well, what's wrong with it is that the, the traffic is jammed from possibly all down from Market Square, going Watergate Street, going Ludlow Street, uh, every evening. You just forget about going in between after school time and that sort of exposure. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. About an hour on the same most days, especially if the lorry delivering them. And and uh, or something like that, but it, it, I think I think it will improve it. I hope I'm right. I may be proved wrong, but we uh, the study was done by traffic management people that has has, has well that have qualified in this, and hopefully the, it'll work. I mean, isn't the reality um, that a town like Navan, same with Drogheda and Ashburn, Rathout, all these places, that the population has grown, there are more cars on the road than ever before, and that uh, traffic congestion is just now a fact of life for a lot of towns in the greater Dublin area, and that no matter what changes you make, uh, it's actually not going to speed up the flow of traffic in a place like Navan? I don't agree with you on that, Ken. Ashburn and Rathout will be completely different, but uh, in towns like Navan, the, the biggest the biggest mistake that was made in Navan was the bypass that's there on, on the what was the Dublin Road. It should have been much further out, and that has still left us with major traffic coming into Navan. As, as I said yesterday evening, sometime after four, the traffic were back to the roundabout at Cam, the whole way out, all the way into Navan, and uh, there was nothing major on or anything like that. I think this will I think this will improve the traffic flow. I hope it does. Please God, it will, and please, please God, people will get used to it. Now, there has to be an incentive for the people that's coming into the town to shop, and that'll be another day's work. And I think, as regards parking, that has to be done sooner rather than later, because we have the fairground there with 400 or whatever car parking spaces there, and that has to be utilised to come into the main, the main centre of the town. But there has to be some uh, incentivization there for the people to park there and go on to the main street, which I will be discussing at a later stage with, with the management. Okay, now tell me, the, this all kicks in at 4pm next Sunday and I understand yeah. the plan uh, certainly for Sunday, perhaps Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, is to have a number of uh, marshals in place to basically yeah. guide motorists as to where they yeah. can and can't go. Explain how that will work. Well, that, that's what I was saying to you. We will have people at all, the, all those junctions to explain you go up there and turn left or you have to go up there and turn right or you can go up this one park here or there. I, You know, I, as I said to you, I hope that the people that's doing those marshals' jobs will be courteous to the drivers. I know some of the drivers will be very unhappy, and especially people that have been living in Navan all their life. And I hope that the, the marshal will be courteous to them and, and try and help them as much as they can. Uh, and that's what they'll be doing to direct them where, to, where the proper place to go or where they have to turn or where they can't turn. Okay, well, uh, let's hope that uh, motorists don't find the proposed plan uh, too confusing. All we can do is wish you well. I just hope we're not back here this time next year with uh, a discussion on a a rearranged traffic plan for Navan again, because this one doesn't work, but we'll see how things pan out. So that's a a change in the traffic flow in Navan, which kicks in at... Be positive, be positive. No, I'm being look, realistic. Look on, look on the bright side. Look on the bright side. Yeah, no, but I'm being realistic because they have made changes in Navin in the past, and you're actually you're actually after admitting that there was an error made in the planning that's led to this problem. 
yes, well, on the Dublin Road, on the bypass of the Dublin yeah. Road, yes. So this yeah. is once again, this is once again, whether it's engineers or architects or planners getting it wrong, but it's the public who suffer. Isn't that the case? Well, we are trying to improve the town. We're not trying to disimprove it. We're trying sure. to make the town a better place. And that's what's been done with the 2030 project in the town and with the traffic flow. All right. Well, look, the best of luck with that. I hope it works out well and that there are so not, not too many complaints and hopefully it'll improve the traffic flow and indeed it'll be good for business as well. We'll leave it there. That's uh, Tommy Riley, Cahillock of Meath County Council. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, regarding our earlier conversation on a cashless society, Davy believes it would be a mistake to go completely cashless. People should have the option and be allowed to use whichever they prefer. Personally, he prefers prefers being able to use both because he finds it it helps to keep him a track of of helps him to keep a better track of his spending and it's unfair to try and force people to go cashless if they don't want to may was in touch she thinks it's very unfair on older people to go cashless as many of them prefer to use cash and have cash on them when it comes to day-to-day living and transactions the likes of revolut and online banking is beyond many of them and it's unfair to try and make them use these services at this stage of their lives. Now, yesterday in the Senate, Fianna Fáil Senator Aaron McGreehan got into a bit of a barney with uh, uh, Junior Minister Pippa Hackett regarding uh, the fallout from the recent flooding in North Louth. And basically, a lot of farmers have found themselves out of pocket. The government appears to be in no rush to financially compensate them. And this is causing all sorts of problems. Uh, Senator McGreehan joins me on the line right now. First of all, Senator McGreehan, first of all, how, how bad are things for the farmers who suffered during the flooding? Um, good morning, Ken, um, and thanks for having me on and talk about this because it is a really important issue for farmers in North Loud and for the, for the farmers that have been affected. Not all farmers have been affected. There has been varying degrees of damage onto land, varying degrees of damage on the, to their father, their hay, their fertiliser, you know, the, the stocks that they've had. Um, but collectively, there is, a, there is a lot of damage done. And the stress of that onto farmers trying try to, and as you um, I'm sure has been co- covered on the radio um, and it's covered quite regularly, the farming incomes, particularly marginalised farmers that we have in North Loud and the Cooley Mountains, they're not big enterprises. They're not, they're not huge, massive farms that are, that are you know, on, on a huge profit. These farmers are, are working hard, who are making ends meet, um, and they are small, small enterprises, family businesses. Um, and I think it's really important that we that we acknowledge that, that you know these aren't big farm enterprises. They don't have the cash flow to replace, um, you know, f- destroyed hay, de- destroyed fertilizer, destroyed uh, grain. And as we know, since the war in Ukraine, the cost of the cost of doing farmer fa- farm um, uh, farming has increased. Um, the fertilizer has gone up. You know, grain has gone up. And and come and with with the with the bad summer last year, the drought in June and the and the wet in July, really, the, you know, hay has has the the in the the amount of hay produced last summer was sure. reduced and hay sure. and silage. But, but, so these what, things are really really important. Yeah, but, what, what um, and the dam. Sorry. Yeah, what I'm asking you is though, how many farmers are adversely affected in the North Louth area? There is, um, we we haven't got full the full list. 
but it's probably about 40 to 50 farmers. So as you can imagine, it's not a, a huge amount of people. Um, and as I said, there's a varying degree of costs um, that would need to, to help and to support farmers get back to where they were. And as I said in the Senate, um, you know, we're, we're starting a, a new season now, Ken. Um, you know, the sheep are coming down off the mountain onto the land for the lambing. They're, you know, the, the fields are getting ready for, for whatever crops you might be, you might be um, sowing for the year ahead. And, you know, sure. so but, we're, but we're getting to a, a critical point in our, in our calendar that fields that were destroyed. Now, I mean, not just, you know, um, you know flooded. Um, that, the water, that's fine. What I'm talking about, crevices, rivers rerouted, you know, ten foot, ten foot of a of a of a of a terrain through a through a field. Do, do you know? So I'm not talking about you know small cosmetic damage. In some fields, in some areas, there are there are huge uh, a huge amount of damage being done, and to fix that, to amend that. That's not just, you know, the front loader of the tractor coming in and, and filling in a few gaps. Farmers can do that. It, you know, they're, 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 it's reasonable. But we're talking about getting, you know, a high mac, a digger, for a couple of days. We're talking, you know, potentially a week in some cases. Okay, but... Can know, I, can filling I, that in. Yeah. We're talking a lot of money. Sure, but can I ask you, do, do you know of any individual farmers, like, who've either, you know, business has stopped or they're struggling uh, to, to, to stay in farming as a result of what happened during the flooding? I know that there's a... I, I know personally, absolutely, lots of farmers who are struggling to keep going. In, in general, Ken... Um, and this is not. This is not. This is not a. Um, it is not a. To say that this. This is. This is the death knell um, of farming. But I'm saying what we have to do is support farmers to stay in business. And it is that critical. If you have a cash flow problem and you can't refence your field, and you can't feed your cattle this year, and you're going to the bank to try and feed your cattle because you can't afford. You can't afford to, to replace the grain that was destroyed. Sure, sure. It is that bad. So yes, um, there is a huge potential of farmers having to sell cows, having not, um, or, or going into debt to put in sure, to, sure. to replace fences. Sure. So absolutely, and it is, um, and 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 it is that important. Okay. That well, well, well. Now you 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 put questions to Minister of State uh, Pippa Hackett yesterday, and you said in your statement that not one department official has got back to you. I mean, what does that say about the way the public service is run? Well, we can have a whole new a whole talk show on, on a whole oh, indeed, I, on that. I've had a few <laughs> issues with one particular department recently. Yes. Yes, and, and, and it is disappointing. Um, and, you know, yes, of course, I have had many conversations since October about farming with the Minister McConnell's uh, himself and also his um, advisors. However, I have not one critical, you know, response back from officials and they're really dragging their heels. So what I asked on Monday, or Monday was that we would, that I would, the minister would intervene um, and get on top of this, and to make sure the officials were doing their job. And I, and I, you know, and I was really glad that after my my debate on in the other day, Minister McConnell gave me a call. Um, he told me he would absolutely intervene and and walk through this, and to make sure that we get we get. He's, he gave me no promises, of course, he can't. But I think it's very important that you know I spoke to him. 
He's given me insurances that he would intervene seen and get working with officials. Um, and then w- working, working through how we can get the Department of Public Expenditure <coughs> to sanction a payment. There was a discussion um, and the, from Minister Hackett about, you know, getting a statutory scheme or some or scheme designed for, for farming. As you well know, we have the Red Cross scheme for businesses. There's a social welfare scheme for, the, for homes. And those schemes have been working re- fairly well um, for other flooding damage. There is no statutory scheme or standard scheme for, for, for farm, farms. Okay, just- and as we know, what in climate change, there is going to be more assist. Okay, Pippa Hackett, in her response to you, she said it has not been possible to compensate all of those impacted by last year's weather. And uh, she seemed to be implying, I don't know if this is uh, going to be the policy, that uh, not everybody who uh, suffered adversely as a result of the flooding is going to be compensated. How serious of a concern is that for you? a huge concern and you can see that I might have I might have uh, raised my raised, raised my tone a little bit you, after you, you, that you did you I, said you said she was talking absolute baloney I did um yes um, and I really do, I do felt that what what was handed to minister Hackett to read out in a depart as a response to me was absolutely well it was baloney um, and what was telling me was that farmers should get involved in mitigation measures, that farmers should, you know, get involved with Minister Eamon Ryan's, Ryan's um, consultation. Yes, of course they should. But don't answer that. Don't give that me as a solution to the damage, the headache, the stress, and the financial stress that farmers in North Loud are facing right now. Um, so these farmers in North Loud... Like they're my neighbours. They're not. They're not anonymous people to me. They're. They are my people. Um, I know them really well. They are involved in, in environmental schemes. They're working through okay, the environment. Okay, but let me ask so you this: That's not an issue. That's not an issue for these farmers. They want that. Yeah, if, but if, if, if it's helped to get there. Yeah, if these farmers don't get compensation quickly, are we looking at some of them basically going out of business? I can't say for definite, Ken. I'm not going to come on the radio and and, and say um, I can't. But what I can tell you is that farm families potentially will be going into debt, will will not be able to produce the food that we eat. The, uh, uh, you know, more. Like we want local, well-produced food. Um, and if we don't have farmers um, able to do that, then we're also losing out. Okay, but uh, um, uh, uh, and if they're not, if they're not, if they're not able to, if they're not able to to pay for or, and and work. No, I, 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 no, no I, that's locally, sure. Work locally and to spend locally. Sure, Aaron, so that, but that, that's the, yeah, that's stating the obvious. Okay, I just I just want to get in another two questions before I, I send you on your way. Um, <laughs> um, you say you spoke to Charlie McConnellogue. He is the minister for agriculture. Uh, yes. What assurances has he given you that this matter will be addressed soon for the the, the farmers in North Louth who have suffered adversely as a result of the bad weather? So he's given me assurances that he would now intervene with his officials to make sure that we look through and make sure we design a scheme that can be worked, that will be um, for the for farmers and potentially other farmers that have been um, impacted as well in the longer term. So how but, hopeful how, how hopeful that this matter could be resolved in the next month or two or are we looking at several months? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 
I'm not going to give any promises. I can't say, say these things, as you well know, Ken. You've been around, you've been around bureaucracy and all these a long time. Um, there is a bureaucracy that is slow, but I can assure you, and I can assure, I want to assure the farming families in, who are listening to me right now that I know of the damage. I know the importance of it. The minister has given me assurance that he will work with me, work with his officials, and um, to, to get a scheme for farmers affected. And we need to get sanction from the Minister, from the Department of Public Expenditure then to pay out. Right. So there's a few things we have to go through, but I'm, I am absolutely adamant that I will continue um, continue the, the fight that's, uh, for, for that. Um, it's really, really important to me. It's really important to, right. to my community in North Light. OK, we leave it there. That's uh, Senator Aaron McGreehan there talking about the plight of farmers in North County Louth who suffered from the recent bad weather. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. OK, just to some of your comments. Re, older people and housing. Jim thinks the number of older people facing housing difficulties will only continue to grow here because people are not able to afford the house prices we're currently seeing. While there is a problem at the minute, we could be facing a full-blown crisis in the coming years unless we see real action from the government. Back to the issue of the cashless society. Darren says we will always need to have a certain percentage of cash floating around. We cannot do away with it totally. For many using cash it's the best way of keeping track of what they are spending and it helps keep them on track uh, financially. Joined in the studio right now by uh, Labour TD for Louth and uh, Me the East, uh, Jed Nash. Jed, um, you've been speaking about this uh, plan to ensure that there is cash available um, around the country so that people who are not using debit cards or Revolut or credit cards do have access to cash. But you have concerns, don't you? I, I do, and I raise these continuously over the last few years. I mean, it is a good thing that uh, we are moving uh, uh, to a greater degree towards the use of electronic payments, digital payments and so on. But that whole system can be quite exclusionary, uh, especially for people who may themselves not be necessarily that confident in terms of their own financial literacy and or digital uh, literacy as well. And all the research done by organisations like TASC, for example, the National Adult Learning Association, uh, and indeed the OECD uh, and others found that there are relatively uh, high levels of problems of financial literacy in Ireland and digital exclusion. So uh, as we move towards what might be described as a cashless society, there always needs to be an acknowledgement and recognition that cash is legal tender, uh, should in my view be accepted uh, as long as it's viable and secure by as many um, economic sectors as possible to guard against that problem with uh, social uh, and financial and economic um, you know, exclusion and the potential risk uh, that that presents. Um, the government plans seem to suggest that there will be a legal obligation on uh, re- on, on certain retailers like for example the local grocery store and supermarkets and pharmacies to accept cash as legal tender in all transactions at the moment as it stands the question of cash is a matter of contract law so in other words if a cafe or a bar or restaurant puts up a sign for example it's visible and saying we don't accept cash on the premises then my view is that they probably um, uh, uh, reach that threshold in terms of complying with contract law but I've seen embarrassing situations I'm, I'm sure as lots of listeners have or they may have been embarrassing situations themselves where those signs may not be apparent you actually have a meal you have a coffee uh, you uh 
wants to pay in cash, that's your preferred way to do it. Sure. Uh, and you're told then in the end that, in fact, that's not going to be possible. I've often stood someone a cup of coffee myself because of those embarrassing situations, sure. as any, I think, decent human being would. But that, that is embarrassing for people. It's humiliating. There's no dignity Absolutely. in that. Absolutely. And there's also issues for people who work in the hospitality sector and the tips make up their, their, their income. Well, that, that's right. And uh, well, thanks to legislation, uh, myself and uh, actually a Sinn Féin senator uh, developed when I was in the Shannon, there's now kind of legal status and protection for tips for workers. So that's less of a problem. And there are uh, means no, by it, which, it, for example... It, no, legally, you know, it's less of a problem. But if somebody's in a restaurant and that they're being told, no, this place doesn't accept cash, right? Um, sometimes if the payment is made through a card, it goes to the, the, the restaurant itself. Well, the, the regulations and the law that's in place at the moment means that that needs to be divided in the same way that a cash tip would. But actually, even if people, and I've observed this myself, and it's often the case that if you are paying by card, you might want to pay uh, the tip by cash because you want to be certain yourself that it goes to the intended recipient, sure. which is the staff member who's actually served you. Also, an important point to make here as well about what government announced yesterday was the regulation of third-party ATM companies by the central bank. Uh, there'll be a requirement now actually on the three main banks that are still in Ireland permanent TSB, AIB and Bank of Ireland to provide for ATMs right across the country within a reasonable distance of people's homes. Um, uh, but there will also be a requirement then for third-party ATM operators, the likes of which you see in your local centre, for example, that they will be governed by central bank regulations. And as well, importantly, and I've been clear on this over the years, they need to cater for uh, low uh, uh, denomination notes. Uh, lots of people will have been in situations where you might go to an ATM, you only require 10 or 20 euro. And they say they're only issuing they're 50s. Issuing 50s. Yeah, and you sure. may not have that 50 in your bank account. So all of these things sure, need, need sure. to be addressed. Okay, Jed, the reason you're in is because the Labour Party is um, putting a, a bill before the doll this week in relation to the Child and Family Amendment Bill. And what Labour is saying is that this bill will close legal mm. gaps and ensure equality for all families. So the logical question is, where are the inequalities? These inequalities manifest themselves in quite a number of ways. We have about, again, 2,000 children who are children of LGBTQ plus couples. And as it stands at the moment, there is a form of discrimination visited on approximately 50% of those children. I'll tell you why. I want to give you a little potted history of where we have come from. The vast majority of Irish people thankfully voted for marriage equality back in 2015. That gave rise then to a need for legislation to, for example, recognise the legal status uh, of LGBTQ plus couples who decided to uh, marry. There are implications then, of course, for families and LGBTQ plus couples who are forming families. So in 2020, the element, certain elements of the 2015 Act were enacted. Uh, it was the last piece, last provisions of that 2015 Act that were to be enacted. And what that provided for was for the first time, it meant that LGBTQ plus families became recognised by the state and a legal parent-child relationship was reflected, for example, on a birth certificate. But that was circumscribed by the law and it was viewed very, very narrowly and didn't reflect the reality uh, of child rearing uh, and um, family formation for a lot of LGBTQ plus couples. So I wanted to just be clear to you on what those restrictions were, right? Uh, and this is straightforward, but at the same time, it can be quite technical. So, 
from 2020, both intended parents could only be listed on the child's birth cert if the circumstances of conception, and this is important, and birth fell within very strict parameters. So what were those parameters? That was only allowed, uh, the situation was only um, accommodated in the law uh, under circumstances where, for example, both parents were female, the child was conceived in an Irish clinic, uh, the child was born in Ireland and uh, where there was a known identifiable uh, donor and where a known identifiable donor was used. And the reality is for a lot of LGBTQ plus couples in Ireland, that is not the case. So, and that actually excludes about 50% of children who are born to LGBTQ plus couples. What are the implications of that? The implications of that are that uh, there are problems when it comes to tax and inheritance, for example, potentially problems when it comes to social welfare benefits and problems as well when it comes to things like passports and potentially citizenship applications into the future. Uh, I've personal experience of this, of family members, for example, uh, a couple uh, married abroad, uh, living uh, abroad, uh, will uh, not be captured uh, by the uh, current uh, Irish law. For example, if the children who were conceived abroad and born abroad wish to apply in the future for Irish passports. Or Irish okay, this strikes so me as, if you like, this strikes me as unfinished business from the marriage Precisely. equality referendum. And, and my head says, was this not all dealt with in pre-legislative scrutiny? Or was it something that everybody overlooked because it just wasn't on their radar? I, I, I think a, a conservative view was taken uh, at the time um, and it actually took five years from the enactment of the 2015 Act even to introduce those very conservative provisions, those strict parameters around um, those relationships uh, and the recognition uh, of those relationships. Um, And I think it is important to look uh, for a moment, Ken, about the kinds of relationships and kinds of family units, for example, uh, that uh, the legislation actually excluded. For example, it excluded kids born to male same-sex parents who are born through surrogacy. And surrogacy surrogacy is often the only option that would be available to uh, gay men who wish to have children. Kids of same-sex couples born outside of Ireland. Kids of same-sex couples conceived outside Ireland. Kids conceived by same-sex couples in a non-clinical setting and kids conceived by female same-sex couples using a known donor prior to May 2020. There was a kind of quirk in the system uh, where prior to that, and I'm aware of situations, couples I know, for example, who where the donor uh, um, uh, uh, you know, involving uh, uh, women, women who married, uh, had children, uh, the donor may have been a friend, uh, the uh, r- relationship was very, very uh, clear indeed. indeed. Uh, and the second parent, if I could describe it as such, in other words, the parent who was not a biological parent, uh, strictly speaking, the second parent would have to, for example, apply for a guardianship. And that guardianship runs out when you become 18 and therefore the legal parental relationship simply isn't recognised. So these kind of scenarios sure. will be, and by the way, judicial discretion yeah. will be provided. Because I think it's important, uh, and I think you would agree, Ken, and listeners would agree, that the reality of a relationship uh, needs to be reflected in law and accommodated and captured sure, by the law but, 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 but uh, by a judge, for example, if a case is taken. But, but as the law stands, yeah. then, people who fall into that category are being blatantly discriminated by the state. That, 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 that could be, that could be uh, the view taken. That's the view that we have taken. And you're right, uh, it is unfinished unfi- business uh, from the 2015 uh, referendum. 
a lot of people, unless they maybe have experienced it themselves or within their family or friend network, wouldn't understand the complexities of this and actually the real implications that are involved for uh, children and for parents who fall outside the scope uh, of this. What this doesn't do either is uh, remove any rights, for example, existing rights that, for example, you know, donors would have or maybe in the future um, uh, where children might want to try to identify, for example, who uh, a biological father uh, may be. Um, and there would be all kinds of pearl clutching and so on from certain um, certain political groupings maybe about the implications of that. I think this is a compassionate, humane, real life and practical mm. set of resolutions to a very, very real problem that is affecting equal treatment of families in this country. Uh, and that's what it's about. It's about recognising that sure. all families should be treated the same. Well, the Taoiseach is a gay man. Uh, Jack Chambers is a gay man. Malcolm Byrne is a gay man. Roderick uh, O'Gorman is a gay man. Is the government sort of saying, yes, Jed, this is a good idea. Introduce the bill and we'll give it all the support it deserves. I don't think anyone's sexual orientation is neither, anywhere, neither here nor there. Um, no, but, it, it's, but, it's, but they would be more sympathetic uh, to, to, to the issues raised in the bill. Well, again, I don't think anyone's sexual orientation should 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 come into it. Um, I, I think we we've yet to um, have it confirmed what the government's formal position is in relation to this um, bill. There's a very active lobby going on at the moment, and I would appeal to government TDs uh, to vote in favour of this bill. The vote would be actually next Wednesday night in our weekly voting block. Uh, it is important that. Um, as many people as possible contribute to the debate uh, this week. We had a debate last week uh, on um, questions around, for example, uh, on a Labour bill that tried to provide for uh, 20 days reproductive health leave, for example, for women who experience miscarriage uh, and 10 days an- uh, annual leave for uh, women who are going through the IVF process and fertility treatment, for example. Uh, the vote on that will be tonight. Uh, government uh, uh, looks set to defeat that. Well, when I say defeat it, what they're going to do is kick the bill to touch and have it read again in 12 months' time, which would be after the election, because they see this kind of, uh, the availability of this kind of treatment and the statutory right for this kind of leave um, as a burden. Uh, for business. We don't see it as that at all. Unfortunately, uh, last week we'd only one Sinn Féin speaker, we'd a range of Labour Party speakers, nobody from the Social Democrats, surprising, uh, who we thought were interested in, um, in, in in progressive proposals like this. Uh, very, very poor turnout indeed. So hopefully tomorrow we'll have more people speaking on this because this has really practical implications for families up and down the country. Our assessment is, and the assessment of the uh, uh, representative body LGBT Ireland, that as it stands at the moment, probably over 50% of LGBTQ plus family units, um, uh, uh, couples rearing children and individual couples rearing children, they're being excluded from the kind of rights and entitlements that you sure. would expect it, in, a, in, it, it, in this society. Isn't one of the great flaws of Dáil Éireann is that while you're introducing this bill, and it's all common sense, it, it's logical, it's it's for the common good, is that because you're in opposition, um, the government parties are unlikely or less likely to adopt it because it's not their policy. That's a possibility, and actually what we've got over the last few years is this kind of cynical idea that um, it happened actually during the 2016-2020 uh, period, Ken, uh, with the confidence supply arrangement. Uh, the reality was that government couldn't defeat bills, they didn't have the numbers, so they sent uh, uh, bills to go to uh, places where described bills are sent to die. Uh, 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 they've delayed the you know second reading by 12 months or 6 months or 9 months, knowing fine well that some bills won't find the light uh, of day. There are 
are measures actually that government could take in their own assisted human reproduction bill uh, that is going through the legislative process at the moment. They could amend that, for example, to, uh, uh, to accommodate situations like this rather than Labour having to bring forward uh, our own discrete piece of legislation to address these very real world, real, real world problems, practical problems, but they've decided not to do that. So we're interested tomorrow to hear what the government's assessment is, what position they will take. We want them to support it and we'll be calling on local Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and Green Party TDs and, and, and public representatives to support it. Finally, Jed, uh, there's been a lot of speculation in recent months uh, that uh, the Labour and the Social Democrat parties uh, should merge because there's a, a block of votes there on the left. You're all, if you like, from the same the same gene pool, more or less, but you all think the same. Um, is it damaging for both parties if a merger doesn't take place? Well, I think there's an interesting poll uh, in the Sunday Independent a couple of weeks ago uh, that uh, touched on the notion of uh, a more united uh, centre-left in this country. And that obviously is something that I'd like to see. We cooperate all of the time uh, with Social Democrats, with uh, like-minded independent left uh, TDs on all kinds of uh, policy proposals and legislation uh, in the Dáil and uh, the relationship at that level is quite good. I think in some ways it's a question for another day. Um, while we do cooperate, uh, I don't see a, a merger of that nature uh, on the horizon. Uh, nothing would be ruled out, of course, uh, into the future. Um, I personally do think that it is a good idea and would be good for our society, our economy and our citizens if social democracy could speak with one political voice. Um, but I think we're some way away from that. All right, we're going to leave it there. That's uh, Jed Nash, TD for uh, Louth and Eastmeath, representing the Labour Party in Dáil Éireann. More to come, we'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, regarding some of your comments on a cashless society, Darren says, we will always need to have a certain percentage of cash floating around. We cannot do away with it totally. For many, using cash is the best way of keeping track of what they are spending and it helps keep them on track financially. Uh, Mary has reservations about doing too much of our financial dealings online. She was uh, always of the opinion that cash was king and she always prefers to use cash where possible. She also worries that too much financial activity online might leave one vulnerable to hacking or scams or allow people to track business or indeed one's spending habits. Regarding the North, uh, Tom was in touch to say it's about time the people realise that there will most likely never be a resolution in the North because the DUP will never agree to the terms being set down. They are determined to delay this process in any way they can and they will continue to do so for as long as possible. It's disgraceful that these talks have been going on for nearly two years at this stage with still no resolution. Tom says if these politicians were not paid one penny while they were uh, out of power sharing, then it wouldn't be long before they get their act together. Now, yesterday, during leaders' questions in the Dáil, the issue of Tara Mines uh, was raised by Meath West TD Pather Tobin, who spoke about the issues concerning workers and uh, challenged the Taoiseach about the government's actions on the matter. Tara Mines is the biggest lead and zinc mine in Europe. It is one of the largest employers in Meath, and its closure has been one of the biggest economic blows to the Midlands East area for a long period of time. A key element of the closure was the fact that electricity prices in this country are the highest in Europe. And Tara Mines management have given a plan to workers. That plan is a race to the bottom in terms of income. Uh, terms and conditions. It seeks over 200 redundancies and possibly reduces the uh, the working month to a three-day or three-week month uh, in terms of, of workers. 
Now, zinc in Meath is an Irish national resource. Tara Mines have made a handsome profit over the years from that resource and from the staff work over that period of time. Yet, the workers are now faced with a choice, the full closure of the mine or damaging and painful concessions uh, to Tara Mines. I would ask you, Taoiseach, what material actions have you taken in the last seven months to protect the workers in Tara Mines? In response, the Taoiseach detailed the work currently being done by the government to help the workers in Navan. I don't think this is just about electricity prices, which, as you know, are now falling and falling rapidly for businesses. Uh, it's also about um, uh, lead and zinc prices, uh, which ultimately uh, determine how much the company gets for what it produces. Uh, Minister Coveney and his team, uh, alongside our enterprise agencies, have been engaging with the company uh, to see what uh, financial and other support the government could put in place. Um, for uh, the company to reopen the mine, which is the objective that we want to uh, achieve, and then to consider uh, Tara Deep, which would uh, give the mine sustainability uh, for decades. In terms of the workers, um, the supports that are available are those that are available for anyone who's lost their job, uh, training, education, help setting up a business, social welfare, and we are improving those. You'll be aware of Minister Humphrey's plans to bring in pay-related benefits uh, precisely to recognise people like tyre mine workers who've been paying into the PRRTI system for years and should get uh, a higher level uh, of uh, job seekers' benefit if they need it. There you are. The Taoiseach Leo Varadko responding to those questions on the current state of play at Tower Mines in Navan. Regarding the cashless society, Maureen was in touch. She believes that cash payment should continue to be an option going forward. She works in a shop and the card machine can go down for a fairly uh, regular period of time. When that happens, people have to go to the nearby ATM machines to get cash to pay for their shopping. In her opinion, it's better to be safe than sorry and leave both options open for people. Uh, John in Bally McKenney outside Drogheda says if cash is gotten rid of he's goosed he says he's never used a credit card and he wouldn't know how and he's in his 50s says he likes to know what he has money wise and if he has it he'll spend it when he feels like it and finally Joe was in touch he doesn't agree with the idea of a cashless society in fact he refuses to deal with shops and premises that refuse to accept cash there you are, that wraps up the Michael Reed Show for this morning. Michael will be back with you in the hot seat just after the 9 o'clock news tomorrow morning. Chris Murray was on sound, Maggie McGuire produced. Sinead Brazel is next. I'm Ken Murray, and I'll talk to you again soon. So until the next time, bye for now. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.